James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse number 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. I pray now, Father, for the filling of the Spirit. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we pray now that you would fill me to teach, fill us all to hear and to respond. Speak to us today, Father. I pray you would hide me behind the cross, that, Lord, uh, I might disappear, and, Lord, you would be the speaker today. I pray, Father, that you would protect me from saying anything I ought not to say, embolden me to say anything I should, help me to be clear and accurate and practical as I try to teach the Word of God. And speak to our hearts today, Father, if this particular message is needed in a particular way by any of these your people. I pray you'd apply it that way today. And I pray if hearts need to be changed, lives need to be changed, that would take place. And I pray, of course, Father, if there's even one who doesn't know you as Savior, that somewhere in this message, even though it's not truly a gospel presentation today, somewhere in this message, you'll get hold of their heart and souls will be saved. So bless this message, bless this time. It's your time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, Whence Cometh Temptation? Whence Cometh Temptation? We started a couple of weeks ago our study in James, a, a new study. This is only the, first, uh, the second lesson. We had a little break for Old Fashioned Sunday. But we learn from uh, verse 1 that the author of this book is indeed a fellow by the name of James. And uh, we spent some time, a lot of time in our first lesson trying to figure out who that person was. We learned that there are four men in the New Testament called James. Uh, and uh, this one is obviously only one of them. It was not James, the son of Alphaeus. It was not James, the son of Zebedee. Both of them were 
members of the Twelve Apostles. It was neither of them who wrote this book, nor was it James, the father of Judas, who was a very minor character in the Bible. This James was the brother of our Lord, the half-brother of our Lord. He had at least four brothers. This half-brother of our Lord had not believed in Jesus during his earthly ministry. This brother had been saved probably sometime after his resurrection when Jesus personally appeared to him. And now he was a follower and disciple or a disciple of the Lord. This James had risen to become the chief leader, the principal leader in the church at Jerusalem. And yet we spent a lot of time noticing last time that in spite of that high position that he held, he was a very humble man. And he considered himself but a slave, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw all that in verse number one. Well, there's another thing in verse number one we didn't really talk about that. And that was who he was writing to. James was writing to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. You see that there in verse 1? In other words, he was writing to Christian Jews who were scattered, uh, had been scattered throughout the region during the various persecutions of the time. The actual word there is diaspora. They had been dispersed throughout the region. These were a people who were saved. They were believers. But they were a people who were suffering and had suffered. These were people who had, in some cases, been forced to flee their homes. And these were people who went through hard times because of their faith. I think I read somewhere that of the 104 verses, 108 verses, 108? Yeah, 108 verses that are in James, 54 of those verses are imperatives or commands. So half of the things James had to say here were direct instruction and direct commands. And here's the very first one. The very first imperative that he wrote to these scattered, suffering people is in James chapter 1, verse number 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Imagine. Here is a family that once had a comfortable home in Jerusalem and now has had to flee their home. They're now maybe living with relatives in some distant area. Maybe they're sharing a bedroom with somebody. Their, their life is now one of hardship. Their, their comfort has been compromised. Their freedom has been impinged upon. They're not living in comfort anymore. And James says to them, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Here maybe is a young wife who has watched as her husband was beaten for his faith. And to her, James says, my sister, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Rejoice! In the midst of trials. It's an interesting message, is it not? It was an interesting way for James to start his letter, and especially when we think about who he was writing to. He was writing to people who were in the midst of trials. Some of us have been studying, we just started studying on Wednesday nights, the history of the church. And uh, we've been looking back, we looked at the apostles and a few of the church fathers this past Wednesday, and there was one fellow that we talked about by the name of Ignatius, and his, his history came to my mind as I was preparing this message. Ignatius was martyred for his faith in the first century. And when we read the accounts of the martyrdom of Ignatius, even though a lot of it is traditional and we don't have, we don't have a, a, a whole bunch of evidence about what happened there, but tradition tells us that when Ignatius was arrested and was being taken away to be martyred for his faith, that other Christians were coming along and trying to help him to escape. They were coming along and they were trying to help him to get away. Don't let them do this to you. And Ignatius would just basically, if I could paraphrase the accounts I read, tell him to shut up and leave him alone. That he, did, do you not know this is what I want? Do you not know that I want to, to, to die a martyr's death for the Lord? 
And tradition says that as he approached martyrdom, he said, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Christ. Did you have that attitude? Could I? Would we have the attitude, that attitude, if we were suffering that level of persecution for the Lord Jesus Christ? But see, that was James' instruction, wasn't it? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And of course, the trials that are mentioned there are not only referring to things like persecution. That's what they were perhaps going through. But, you know, the circumstances of life would fit in here. The circumstances of life can be trials, sickness, or financial hardship, or family distress, or pain. Those are all examples of trials that we all face and might fall into. We all experience them. If for some reason we have managed to get through life without experiencing them, yeah, we're going to experience them. We all do. We're all going to be able to look forward to something like what Job talked about when he said, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease. Nor am I quiet. I have no rest for trouble comes. Doesn't that sound like your life sometimes? Sounds like mine. And when we find ourselves in such a situation, James says to us, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now there are some very interesting things about this passage. Throughout the first 18 verses of this passage, uh, James is referring to temptation. If you're holding a King James Bible, you'll notice that's the word that is seen throughout here. Temptation. Verse number two would be translated in the King James Bible, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now in those first few verses, they're talking about trials. Not the type of temptation that we would think about. It's important for us, if we're going to understand what he's teaching us here, to understand that that word has two meanings. The King James uses, translates it the same all the way through, temptation. But it can, be, it can mean two different things. Temptation the way that we think of temptation, which is a solicitation to evil, or temptation the way that we just read it here, which is a trial or a test. We have to ask ourselves when we look at this, where do these things come from? I titled the message, Whence Cometh Temptation, because I look at this and I... I wonder, where, where does temptation come from? If we look at the first few verses, it would seem like they come from God, right? Because how else could uh, James tell us to rejoice in the midst of them if they don't come from God? But then we get down to verse number 13. And it says, no, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So which is it? Whence cometh temptation? And the only way we can answer that is to understand that dual meaning of that word. In the first parts of this passage, the main part I want to talk about today, he's talking about uh, temptation in, in the aspect of a trial or a test in the latter part, and we'll save that for next week. He's talking about a solicitation to evil. Where does trials come from? James is telling us here they come from God, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Where does temptation come from? The temptation to evil. He says that never comes from God. We'll save that for next week. So let's look at this verse just a little bit this morning and a few verses to follow. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Just a few thoughts come to mind. Number one, I already kind of mentioned this, but let's talk about it. Trials will come. Trials will come. I don't think we need to belabor the point at all, but I do think it's important for us to notice that James didn't say if. 
He said, when? Did you notice that? It does not say, my brethren, count it all joy if you fall into various trials. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's an important distinction. It helps us to have the right perspective. Trials are inevitable for the Christian. Paul said to the Philippians, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He said to the Thessalonians, no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. And to Timothy, he said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In America, we have been unusually blessed, have we not? We have been spared that type of trial. We do not have to worry about being chased out of our homes, at least not yet. But you know, around the world, we still see it. And we're seeing it a lot right now. Do you know our brothers and sisters in Syria right now are having their homes burned down around their heads even as we speak? A lot of times I think we think about these Arab nations and we think they're, they're all Muslim. They're not. There are hundreds, thousands of believers in there, Christians, who are suffering this level of persecution and trial for the faith. Oh, how we ought to be praying for them. We in America have been spared that. But we're not spared trials. Trials will come. You know, I think some people, perhaps during a time of great trial in their life, that's when they tend, tend to sometimes turn to Christ. And they think that because they've, they've turned to Christ and they've handed those trials over to him, that they're all going to disappear now. Everything's going to be fine now. Life's going to be roses now. And there's not going to be any trials. Heretical health and wealth preachers on the television and radio feed that garbage. They tell you things like you can have your best life now. It's heresy. It's not true. You see, that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said plainly, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Did you catch his promise there? We like his promises that are, you know, that are positive, but here's a promise. Did you catch his promise? In the world you will have tribulation. It's a promise. Our rest is future. Victory is ultimately seen in heaven. Not on this earth. On this earth. We still dwell in enfeebled, sin-sick bodies with all that means and all that entails. Because a lot of people turn to Christ not understanding this, they end up falling away. Their profession of faith is proven to be false because they were turning to Christ as some, I don't know, cure-all for a few worldly problems rather than recognizing that he is the one who could save their souls for all of eternity. <coughs> Jesus talked about that in a parable in Matthew chapter 13, he said, He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution, there it is, trials, arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So we need to notice this this morning. We need to see this, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We need to be ready for it. We need to not be tripped up by it. We need to not be casualties of trials, for they will come. But let's look at something else here. Yes, trials will come. But James says we can rejoice in trials. And he says we can rejoice in trials because God has a reason for them. Now, that's a crucial, crucial distinction. I want us to think about this. We can rejoice in trials. James doesn't say we need to rejoice for trials. You see the difference there? There is a difference. I don't think James is describing an attitude here where we're going to run around saying, I'm thankful for my trials. I just love my trials. Thank you for the trials. Some of you know I'm a Star Trek fan, right? You know I like Star Trek. 
There's a particular line that James T. Kirk spoke one time, which will go down in history, when he said, I love my pain. I need my pain. I don't think that's what James is saying. You see, because as much as I like James T. Kirk, I don't love my pain. Since I recently turned 55 years old, I find I have a lot of it. And I don't like it one little bit. I wish it would go away. I don't think James is here telling us that we're to be thankful for our trials, but we are to be rejoicing and thankful in our trials. We rejoice not because of the trial, but because of the fact we know God is working on our life through it. That's what we're rejoicing about. Peter described a similar attitude in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It might seem a small distinction, but it's important. We're not to rejoice. We don't have to rejoice for our trials, but we do rejoice in them and because of what God is doing in our life through them. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In his book, Opening Up James, author Roger Ellsworth said this, quote, he said, the crucial thing is to remember that such suffering comes from God's hand. Nothing is clearer in Scripture than the truth that God sends trials and difficulties into the lives of his children because he has certain purposes to achieve. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice in trials because God has a reason for them. He is doing something. And so I, you're all sitting there looking at me with these glassy eyes, and you're all saying, okay, that's just, all, that's just wonderful. What in the world is he doing? What is he doing when he puts me through? these trials. Well, James suggests a couple of things. He suggests, first of all, that he is building within us patience. Do you see that there? Verse number three. Verse number three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Or as some other translations have it, endurance or steadfastness. It's interesting that James used that word knowing there. It's an interesting word in the Greek it means literally knowing through experience. He was basically saying, this is not something new to you. I'm not telling you some new truth. This is something you already know. And it's something we all know too, right? We all know this is true. We know that, that pain, out of pain and out of trial comes endurance. How does a person run a 26.2 mile marathon? Would you like to see me try that? 26.2 mile marathon? I can guarantee you I might be able to make it to that door right there. And that would be about it. You know why? Because I haven't trained. I haven't gone through any of the intervening trials that are necessary in order to build a level of endurance to do that. How many of you read about the 64-year-old grandmother this past week or so who swam from Cuba to Florida? That's like 100 miles. She's 64 years old. She did not just decide. How many 64-year-old grandmothers here would like to try that? Anybody? Uh, I think you might have to practice a little and train a little. You see, endurance comes when we invest in those trials. And, and I think James is saying here that the same thing is true in our Christian walk. We endure because we have endured. We endure more difficulty because we have endured smaller difficulties in the past. It's almost hunting season. Amen. Can I get an amen? It's almost hunting season. 
And uh, for the past few years, I have had the privilege of hunting down at my brother's place down in southern Ohio, and we're gearing up for that again. A few years back, he had that land timbered out, and they took a whole bunch of great large trees out and left a bunch of spindly little ones behind. And I went down there sometime after that had happened, and a, a storm had blown through. And uh, I walked back into this one area where all these trees had been standing before, and I walked back in, and it, was, it just looked like a bunch of toothpicks laying on the ground. All these trees were laying on the ground. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, we had a wind come through. And not once they had taken all those big trees out that were sheltering those little ones, those little ones just went right over. Because they had not had to stand up to wind before, they couldn't stand up to wind now. They'd been sheltered before. And so they fell now. God uses trials in the life of the Christian to build patience, endurance, steadfastness. There is no other way. The only way to build strong bodies is to exercise. You can tell by looking at me. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> exercise. Pump iron. Run until you're ready to drop. It'll build endurance. So my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He's building endurance in you. He's making you strong. If a serious trial comes down the road, you'll be able to stand. There's another thing he's doing. In trials. It's in verse number four. Verse number four. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Not only is he uh, producing endurance in you, he's producing maturity in you. That, that phrase, perfect and complete, uh, it's, it's maturity. The, the benefits don't stop with patience. They move on to maturity. They move on to completeness. And so the ultimate result then of trials in the life of the Christian is a person who is perfected all over or fully developed in every part. That's the ultimate goal. In other words, grown-ups. He's trying to make us into grown-ups. Trying to make us into grown-ups. You know, parents, you cannot train your children. You cannot mold your child into a functioning, sensible, productive adult without there being a little pain involved. It just cannot happen. Trials and testings are part of the process. You know, sometimes you actually have to say to your child, no. You're aware of that, right? I think too many parents are ignorant of that. And the reason I think that is because I find it very difficult anymore to eat dinner in peace in a restaurant without being tortured by other people's misbehaving children. Simply say no. It's not that hard. You remember the study of David? David made a very similar mistake with his son Adonijah. We didn't spend a lot of time on Adonijah. He was one of David's bad sons. But the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse number 6 that his father, that is David, had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He had never said no to Adonijah. And Adonijah grew up to be an absolute bum. He rebelled against his father and ended up losing his life as a result of it all. Parents need to say no. Parents need to discipline their children. Parents need to spank their children when needed. Oh, a murmur goes through the crowd on that one. <laughs> Doing so will build grown-ups out of them. Grown-ups who will honor God. Grown-ups in whom you will rejoice. Failing to do so will only produce adult-sized children who topple at the first breeze, just like those trees. You see, that's what God's trying to do in our lives through trials. That's why we can rejoice in the midst of trials. We know God's building endurance. God's building patience within us. He's building us into mature, complete 
adults. That's the whole point of the Christian life, is it not? Paul said something very similar. He said it in Ephesians chapter 4. He said he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. That's that word. Mature. Complete. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Isn't that what it's all about? Making us mature. And so, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because God is using those trials to build patience into your life and endurance and maturity and completeness. One more thought. Trials will come. God is, we can rejoice in those trials because God's doing something in our life as a result. Third thought, God will give us what we need to get through those trials. God will give us what we need. Look at verse number five. Verse number five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We often quote this particular verse as just a general promise about prayer, right? Or a general promise about wisdom. If you, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. And I, I've preached it that way and used it that way and applied it that way in my own life. I, I don't think it's wrong to apply it that way. I think it's accurate. But I also don't think it's the primary context. He's talking about trials here. He's talking about rejoicing in trials here. And I think what he's saying here is if you're struggling with that, if you're trying to figure out how in the world am I supposed to do that, if you're wondering how am I supposed to rejoice in trials, I don't understand then he's saying God will help you with that. Ask for wisdom concerning that. So if you're struggling with that, if you're saying, you know what, I'm going through some things, and I really need the wisdom of God to understand how to deal with it. That's what he's saying. Ask him about it. He'll give you the help you need and help you to rejoice in trials. And some might be sitting you know, here saying, that's all, that's all wonderful, that sounds good, but I've tried that, preacher, and I still don't understand I have prayed, I've asked. I, I don't understand why God's putting me through the things he's putting me through. Well, James gives us two caveats here. Two caveats about this matter of asking. He says, if you need help with this, God will give it to you. If you need wisdom about this, God will give it to you. But, two caveats today. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, you need to have faith. You need to have faith. There can be no divided loyalty. You cannot be double-minded, trusting a little bit in God, and trusting a lot in other things. You cannot be that way and expect to get anything from God. That phrase in the Bible there, double-minded, is from a Greek word which literally means a man of two minds. A double-minded man, one person said, is one whose devotion to God is less than total. His attention is divided between God and other things, and as a consequence, he is unstable and therefore unable to receive from God. You want God to answer, you need to be single-minded about it. You need to be devoted. You can't be double-minded. The New Living Translation is helpful here. It says, but when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. Don't waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. You remember what we said a couple of weeks ago when we talked about what the whole book of James is about? What is the key thought in James? Faith works. Working faith. 
James is not writing here to lost people. James is writing to believers, people who believe in Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who already claim the name of Christ, claim that they are saved. He's not writing to those who need faith or should need faith. He's writing to those who claim they already have it, and he's reminding them it needs to be total. It can't be halfway. You can't have one foot in heaven and one foot in the world. And so I wonder this morning, is that you? It's so common. It's so common in America today. We, we can all think of people, and maybe we see it in ourselves, to be half-hearted in our devotion to the Savior. James says here we need to be wholehearted. Single-minded devotion, not double-minded. And so if you're struggling under trials and difficulties of faith, if you're asking for wisdom and you're saying, I don't understand, it may be because of this. And maybe you need to examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I just giving half of myself to the Lord? Double-minded man. He says something else. There's another caveat here. It's in verses 9 through 11. Ask for wisdom. He'll give it to you. But you need faith, verses 6 through 8. You also need perspective, verses 9 through 11. And again, I think this is, a lot of times we pull this out and we look at it as just a, a standalone little section of Scripture. But I think it's in, within this context. I think what he's saying here, if you need to know how to rejoice you need to ask for wisdom. You need to ask trusting, single-mindedly. That's what we saw in the previous verses. But he's also saying you need to ask with an eternal perspective. Recognizing that the things in this world are temporary and will soon pass away. Those whose perspective is centered on their riches, on their wealth, on the things of this world, will find that perspective is misplaced. It's going to go away. Those things they loved and treasured and trusted in will soon be gone. But those whose perspective is eternal, who forgo those riches in light of eternal riches, they will be exalted, it says. So you know what he's saying here? He's saying when we have the right perspective, we can rejoice in trials. When we recognize that the things that we're so concerned about on this earth are temporary, we can rejoice in trials. When we recognize that the end is yet to come, we can rejoice in trials. When we have the right perspective. Paul said our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, whence cometh temptation? Where does it come from? Where do trials come from? That's the type of temptation we're talking about here this morning. And according to James, they come from God. And according to James, we should count it all joy when they do. And we should rejoice in the midst of them when he brings them our way. We should count it all joy because he has a reason for bringing trials into our lives. We should count it all joy because he is building patience and maturity and completeness into our lives. We should count it all joy because he is helping us to grow up in him. Many of us old folks remember watching Muhammad Ali box. Anybody remember watching Muhammad Ali box? Muhammad Ali was a great boxer. He would say he was the greatest. He used to call himself that. He used to say that he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Remember that? We watched many wonderful fights. I believe one was the Thriller in Manila, wasn't it? One was the Rumble in the Jungle. There were some great fights with Muhammad Ali. A champion of champions. But you know, he did not become a champion 
without the pain. He did not become that champion without the intervening trials, without all the training that took place. I read a quote that he once said. He said this, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. And boy, he did. And he does. James said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because God is working on you. And God is working in you. And he wants you to live the rest of your life as a champion.